We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Ever wondered why all those hard-working Nazi scientists and doctors in the death camps never won a single Nobel Prize for medicine or science among the lot of them? They did so much hard work into all sorts of problems concerning the human body, suffering battle injuries and terrible diseases. They were helped by the Jews, Russians and all the other unwilling prisoners who had their lives taken from them for science. You think I'm joking. Well, you know that old saying, maybe you don't, that many a truth is said in jest. If you have a curious mind, you won't want to miss this Danger Zone program. Stick around. With Hitler's coming to power, there was a new normal. Well, what I, growing up in the 1950s, would have called abnormal. But living in the early part of the 20th century, I'm not so sure anymore that society hasn't taken a turn backward to these good old days. Anywho, the doctors who participated in the experiments on people who were clearly unwilling victims in concentration camps, didn't let that stop them from doing their research and experimentation. Here's a wonderful example of how far crazy had gone in Nazi Germany. In 1941, a psychiatric hospital at Hadamar marked the putting to death, euthanizing, of its 10,000th mentally impaired person with an official celebration. There were speeches and beer for staff. Like I said, some in the early 21st century have taken a lead from the Nazis. Just look at Michelle Williams accepting her Golden Globe Award, which she said she owed to her abortion. Sort of thing a Nazi would have said proudly as well. After the First World War ended, the German Rhineland was occupied by the French. Some of the occupying French troops were black colonial soldiers from Senegal. Naturally, some of the soldiers had sexual relations with German women who had children to them. The children were called Rhineland Bastards by the German right. It was a dangerous corruption of the purity of the Aryan race. When Hitler came to power, this problem was addressed by the Gestapo's Special Commission Number 3. It planned and carried out the forced sterilisation of the Rhineland bastards. One of the leading scientists involved in this program was Eugène Fischer, who had written a book called Human Hereditary and Race Hygiene in 1921. It was a book that Hitler was able to read at his leisure while he was in Landau prison after his attempted coup in 1923. He was so impressed with it that he referred to it in Mein Kampf. A man who was to become an outstanding scientist, 
in the scientific and medical experiments in the death camps was one of Fisher's students, a young Joseph Mengele. Overall, the experiments carried out in the death camps were addressing problems of medical treatment of wounded German soldiers, although there were other experiments that were purely racially oriented and basically were useless for any world outside the world of the Nazi Third Reich. One of the experiments was into the effects of extreme low temperatures on the human body when immersed in very cold water. This was a problem for German air crews that were shot down over water. The waters that they were dropping into weren't the pleasant, temperate waters that air crews in the Pacific experienced, although with sharks. The German crews were only, metaphorically speaking, in hot water, but generally the water was always going to be cold enough to be life-threatening to them, especially for air crews downed over the Atlantic and more so over crews forced down into the freezing North Sea and Barents Sea. For German air and naval forces had been deployed against Allied convoys, delivering vitally needed supplies to Russia at their port of Murmansk. It was known that humans didn't survive in these waters for more than one or two hours at most. Dr. Sigmund Rascher attempted to duplicate those conditions at Dachau. He used about 300 prisoners in experiments, recording their shock from exposure to extreme cold. About 80 or 90 of the subjects died as a result of these experiments. Dr. Rascher asked but was refused, permission to transfer his hypothermia lab from Dachau to Auschwitz. Auschwitz was a much larger facility, and a greater degree of seclusion would have been possible there. The problem with his experiments at Dachau were that the screams of the prisoners, their arms and legs often frozen white, disturbed the other prisoners. In 1942, Dr. Rascher also undertook hazardous experiments concerning high altitudes at Dachau. When air crews had to bail out of planes at high altitudes, with or without oxygen masks, at low atmospheric pressures, what was the best way to help them survive? Dr. Rascher used a decompression chamber to simulate high altitude conditions. He dissected the brains of several of the human guinea pigs while they were still alive to demonstrate that high-altitude sickness was the result of the formation of tiny air bubbles in the blood vessels of the brain. Of the 200 prisoners used for these experiments, 80 died in the course of the experiments. The rest were later executed. After World War I, and even though there were international treaties in place against the use of chemical weapons, each side thought that the other would use them. Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler wanted to test the lethality and effects of mustard gas on humans. In late 1942, he ordered Dr. Bickenbach to conduct these tests so that German scientists could try to develop some way of protecting German soldiers from mustard gas. Dr. Bickenbach was given 52 French prisoners for trials. Four of them died in experiments conducted at Fort Ney in Strasbourg, France. 
The other prisoners developed pulmonary edema, but survived. Well, briefly. The unconfirmed account of what happened to these prisoners afterwards is that Bickenbach had them herded into an airtight testing chamber, had a vial of mustard gas broken open in the space, and timed how long it took before the prisoners died. These experiments that I've just talked about, I'll talk about again later in this program, and you'll be surprised what I have to say about them. But some of the experiments were useless for anything. They were based purely on the weird, racist views of the Nazis. So it was that Dr. Joseph Mengele, the pupil that I'd just referred to, had a fascination with twins. His experiments were conducted at Auschwitz. His favourite subjects were Jewish dwarves and identical twins. To achieve racial purity for the Aryan race, a race which did not and never had existed, he believed that he could unlock the secrets of human production and multiple births. His goal was to help the Aryan master race multiply in ever greater numbers and eventually repopulate the world with Germans. 1,000 pairs of twins were used by him, of which about 200 survived. Some of those who survived his experiments became involved with an infamous incident at the end of the war in the town of Neuengam on 20 April 1945. On that very day, Adolf Hitler, who only had another 10 days to live, was giving his last public appearance meeting with some very young boys in the Hitlerjugend, the Hitler Youth, and patting them on their faces and handing out iron crosses for heroism for fighting Russian tanks in Berlin. A convoy of trucks drove to an empty school building on Bullenhuser Dam in the north of the city of Neuengam. Apart from the SS guard, there were 26 men, two women and 22 children. The children, all Jews, were aged between 12 and 4 years old. They were all of different nationalities. They'd all been used for medical experiments at Auschwitz. A few months earlier, when Auschwitz was being evacuated before the Russians arrived, the children had been taken to Neuengam, hopefully so that the experiments could continue and be completed. Now the SS knew that the gig was up. These children were a shocking living example of what the Nazis had been up to. The children were taken to the large school gym. It had been prepared beforehand for what was now going to happen. Looped ropes had been placed two metres apart and all of the children were hung. When the SS had finished with the children, they hanged two French doctors and two Dutch nurses who had been in charge of looking after them. 24 Russian prisoners of war who happened to be with them were also hung. This seemed like the depths of hell until a student attending Keio University in Tokyo went into a second-hand bookshop in 1984 and found a box containing a lot of records. The Nazi scientific and medical experiments were horrific. It's not known how many people were killed in the course of the war. It's believed that thousands died. 
But that was nothing compared to the people who died at the hands of the Japanese scientific and medical research facility set up in 1938 in Japanese-occupied Manchuria, near the town of Harbin. It was called Unit 731. It was an enormous complex of more than 150 buildings spread over six square kilometres. It was mainly opened to develop chemical and germ warfare weapons and research, to determine human physical limitations in any circumstances imaginable in the furtherance of waging war against Japan's enemies and helping with the treatment of Japanese soldiers so that they could survive. There were 3,000 Japanese research workers at Unit 731. It was commanded by Lieutenant General Ishishiro. I guess most of the personnel working there weren't military officers, which would explain why a military person of such low rank as a lieutenant was put in command. Japanese universities and medical schools enthusiastically supplied doctors and research scientists for this facility to carry out its work. The people experimented on included Chinese prisoners of war, Chinese civilians, and in some cases Western prisoners of war. It's always hard for people to treat other people monstrously, but you can get around this by calling them something else. To the Nazis, the Jews were not human. The Russians were subhuman, untermenschen. To the Japanese working at Unit 731, the human guinea pigs that they worked on were called maruta, Japanese word meaning wooden logs. The activities undertaken at Unit 731 included infecting human beings with things such as the plague and anthrax. Once the infections were established, the prisoners were often cut open while they were alive and without wasting anaesthetic on them to see how the diseases affected human organs. Tying people to stakes to conduct a series of different tests was also a favourite and often used technique to carry out on a variety of research projects. This was the way biological weapons such as plague, cultures and bombs filled with plague-infested fleas were evaluated. The weapons would be detonated as they would in wartime, and then the effects of the weapons on the people tied to the stakes could be observed. Other victims tied to the stakes were left exposed during harsh winters to find out how to best treat frostbite. Tying people to stakes was also useful to evaluate the effects of shrapnel bombs at different ranges. To do this, the prisoners were tied to stakes at staggered distances from where the shrapnel bomb would be detonated. The bomb would then be detonated and doctors could walk at their leisure around to observe the nature and extent of a prisoner's injuries and how long it took them to die. The effects of flamethrowers on people was also assessed using this technique. Starvation was also studied this same way, as was the effect of poisons. The Japanese weren't entirely sure that Westerners would suffer the same effects as Asians when targeted for bacterial and biological warfare. So some European prisoners of war were sent 
to Unit 731 and test it, including Australians. When pregnant women or children of whatever age were needed, the Japanese would kidnap them off the streets of Harbin. After the war, there were no complete records of what research was done. But I expect that you're curious about what happened to the professional people, the doctors and scientists involved with the Nazi and Japanese medical and scientific experiments. So what was the outcome of all of these evil experiments as far as justice for the victims by having the perpetrators punished? Well, Bill Bryson in his book, The Body, A Guide for Occupants, tells us that at the end of World War II, Japan and Germany led the world in understanding microbiology, nutrition, frostbite, weapon injuries and the effects of nerve gases, toxins and infectious diseases. The German scientists and medical practitioners fared far worse after the war than the Japanese. I guess today we'd put that down to racism. Most of the Japanese medical practitioners and scientists involved in these wicked medical experiments were given immunity from prosecution by the victorious allies in exchange for sharing what they'd learned. Shiro Ishii, the Japanese head of Unit 731, the most wicked medical and scientific research facility that the world has ever seen, was extensively debriefed after the war by the Allies. He was then set free. He died in 1959, well before the disgusting secret of Unit 731 was accidentally exposed by that Japanese student buying a box of materials in a second-hand bookshop in 1984. One German doctor, Dr. Karl Klauberg, had been put in charge by Reichsführer SS Himmler of doing research at Auschwitz into ways to efficiently have women sterilised en masse. The women chosen for these experiments were housed in Block 10. They were between 20 and 40 years old and had not had children. Dr. Klauberg tormented many of the women, telling them that he had specially chosen a man to have intercourse with them. As a joke, he would tell the women that they had been inseminated with animal sperm and were carrying a monster. 300 women were treated, I should say mistreated, by him. At the end of the war, Dr. Klauberg was captured by the Russians and sent to a gulag. Rightly so. On his release, he went back to West Germany and resumed his profession as a doctor. He listed his experience in Auschwitz on his business card. Incredible. When he returned to West Germany, he had a press conference where he spoke proudly about his research at Auschwitz. A furor resulted and he was later arrested in 1955. But the German Chamber of Medicine refused to cancel his medical practitioner's license. There's a widely held view that the Nazi doctors and scientists conducting these evil experiments were incompetent monsters, Dr. Frankensteins, people of no scientific or medical skills. But this is, for the most part, wrong. The doctors and scientists involved in this research were actually among the top professionals in their fields. The results of their experiments on these poor human victims were presented in scientific journals 
and at prestigious conferences and academies. At three conferences in 1942, Dr. Rasch's hypothermia experiments on cold and freezing were presented in a paper called The Medical Questions in Marine and Winter Emergencies. These were presented to several hundred doctors. Other doctors and scientists involved in experiments on unwilling human victims likewise delivered papers to their professional colleagues. Doctors Karl Gebhardt and Fritz Fischer in their presentations reported the findings on research conducted on 200 female prisoners at Auschwitz in which the women's lungs were injected with gas, bacilli and streptococci which caused them to die from from pulmonary edema. But the Nazi experiments live with us today as a point that taunts and tantalises us with how it may help important medical research that can't be done any other way than the way the Nazis did it. Although it could have been done more humanely, the results were still the murder of most of the subjects. In 1989, the American Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, was looking into the use of phosgene used in mustard gas. It was also used in the manufacture of pesticides and plastic. The only research available on the effects of phosgene mustard gas were experiments on animals. But often the reactions of animals differ hugely from what happens to human beings. Data on the effects of gas on humans would be invaluable for this research. Exactly the kind of research that had been conducted by our friend from earlier in this program, Dr. Bickenbach, on those poor 52 French prisoners. Todd Torslund, who was with a private organisation consulting to the EPA, doing the scientific research needed to help the EPA, defended the accuracy of the Nazi data, which the EPA was saying was not usable because it was unreliable. Although the prisoners had been in poor health, Torslund said that that meant the findings would be conservative and therefore more useful. The EPA said the Nazi data did not give information on the weight and other physical information of the victims. They were trying to squirm out of having this horrible research used by them. Again, Torslund said that data didn't matter. The phosgene gas is so toxic that it's the dose in the air that makes the difference, not things such as weight and gender. The use of this Nazi medical experiment data could have saved the lives of people living near the pesticide and plastic manufacturing plants. The American and Allied troops in the Gulf to fight Saddam Hussein were in the real likelihood that he would use phosgene gas against them. The lives of those personnel were jeopardised by not using the results of the Nazi experiments to help find a way to combat mustard gas. The head of the EPA had to make a decision. 22 EPA scientists protested using this data. The head of EPA instructed Torsland not to use the Nazi data. It can't be conclusively said that his decision cost lives or serious health risks to people, but no other data was available that was as relevant 
and as useful as the Nazi data. Over the years since the Second World War, scientists have found themselves facing major dilemmas in research they were undertaking, research which would benefit all of mankind if the Nazi findings were allowed to be used. It seems to many that to honour the victims of the Nazi medical and scientific experiments where the nature of those experiments produced valuable data about the effects on human beings, the data should be used. It at least makes their brutal killings, shortening of their lives, serious damage to their physical and mental health, produce a worthwhile result. At the beginning of this program, I asked the question whether the Nazi doctors and scientists should be awarded the Nobel Prizes for their important work. Obviously, I was joking. That would be taking it too far. But the issues raised here are very important to all of us. Views on this difficult issue still have no universally agreed answer, and probably never will. Thanks for joining me, Paul, for this Danger Zone program. Make sure you don't miss my next program.